From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Earth Eats, and I'm your host, Kate Young. To me, serving others is, we might not be curing cancer, but I think what we're doing matters. I think extending a smile to somebody, asking them where they're from, engaging, connecting with them, connecting on some level. And to me, food does that. This week on the show, Ed Schwartzman on what's so special about a New York bagel and what motivated him to open his own bagel shop in Bloomington. Plus, a recipe featuring spring flowers and a poem about pickles. All that and more coming up in the next hour. Stay with us. During the pandemic, school lunch was free for all public school students. But last fall, students had to begin paying again, and families that qualified had to sign up for free or reduced cafeteria meals. Since that change, many school districts in the Midwest say fewer kids are eating lunch and meal debt is soaring. The United States Department of Agriculture recently proposed a change to try to get more free meals to kids across the nation. For Harvest Public Media, Kate Grumke reports some want an even bigger solution. In the Melville School District outside of St. Louis, kindergartners file into the cafeteria for lunch. Today's menu? Breakfast for lunch. French toast sticks, sausage links, sweet potato tots. Oakville Elementary students slide their trays toward Pat Bros, who's ringing the kids up. Thank you. Bros says last year, when school meals were free for everyone, more kids came through her line. There was a lot more kids. They all, everybody wanted breakfast and lunch. That wasn't just in St. Louis. When the program was free for all kids last year, schools across the country served more than 80 million more meals compared to the year before the pandemic. But now families have to pay again, and low-income families have to apply to qualify for free or reduced-price meals. In Melville, they're seeing fewer kids in their subsidized program. And at the same time, meal debt is way up. School lunch debt is rising across the Midwest and the nation. In the Sioux City Community School District in northwest Iowa, students have racked up about $22,000 in debt. Rich Luzzi runs nutrition for the district and says the government could have handled this change better. Giving it for two years or whatever, and then abruptly stopping it instead of phasing it down. Okay, this year we'll cut it down to about half, and then easing into it. That could have helped families prepare to readjust and rethink. But instead, many families didn't realize they had to sign up to get free lunch. And the change came as inflation meant their money isn't going as far. Some states are trying to fill in the gap, Minnesota, Colorado, and three other states have passed legislation to offer free school meals long-term. There are also calls to go back to universal free meals at the federal level. Crystal Fitzsimons is a director at the Food Research and Action Center. The pandemic proved that it is possible and that it is doable and that it is the right thing to do. The Biden administration has a more gradual idea. The USDA proposed a new rule to expand something called the Community Eligibility Provision. It allows schools and districts with a lot of high-need students to serve free meals to all of their kids. 
the USDA wants to lower the threshold, allowing more schools to qualify for the program. U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack announced the proposed rule change at a school in Colorado. We're providing greater flexibility, more participation in a program, resources that take a little of the pressure off. Before the pandemic, about one in three school districts in the U.S. were already serving free meals to all students through community eligibility. Fitzsimon says this proposal could bring even more in. This is a really wonderful thing because it increases the number of schools that can opt to offer free meals to all their students, but it doesn't actually increase the amount of federal funding that the school would receive. So, you know, we're still hoping that maybe Congress would put in additional funding. Because states or schools have to fund these programs themselves, not all eligible districts choose to participate. In Nebraska, a lot of districts are reluctant to sign up for the community eligibility program even if they qualify. The state's legislature has multiple school lunch bills. One proposal would incentivize school districts to sign up for that community program. It's from State Senator Elliot Bostar, a Democrat who represents parts of Lincoln. It's, it's difficult to have a family these days. It's expensive. And so anything that we can do to make it a little bit easier to lighten the load or ease the burden um, is, is worthwhile. Bostar says the biggest hurdle in his state will be finding a way to pay for this. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Kate Grumke. Harvest Public Media is a collaboration of public media newsrooms in the Midwest and Great Plains. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. Next up, we have a story from producer Violet Barron about a local shop offering a not-so-local experience. If you go to Colstone Square in Bloomington on a Saturday or Sunday morning, that's that strip mall off 3rd Street and done by campus, you'll see a line of people coming from the last storefront down, and they'll probably be sneaking out the door and into the parking lot. And then squeezing past the ones in line, there'll be a trail of people coming out the door, clutching brown paper bags with warm sandwiches inside. Everyone's chattering, enjoying the weekend, and eager to tear into their order. That's a common scene in bagel meccas like New York and Chicago, but until recently, not so much here in Bloomington. But now it is. That's thanks to Gable's Bagels, a new shop in town that's been basically flooded with business from the moment it opened its doors, and the experience is guided by a big personality inside the shop. Good morning, ladies. Thank you for joining us today. Have you guys been here before? So well, I'm glad one is and one not. That's even better. So I imagine she brought you in. Even better. Thank you. My name is Ed Schwartzman. I am the very proud owner of a new restaurant here in Bloomington called Gables Bagels. Now, I'm born and raised in New York City. Okay, anytime a New Yorker leaves the city, uh, usually a good barometer of how they judge a city, if they wherever they move to, whether it's Bloomington, San Antonio, doesn't matter. Why is it San Antonio? I have no idea. But um, they'll say, can you get good pizza and can you get good bagels? And um, a New York bagel and New York pizza is just different. As my wife keeps telling me, don't say yours are better. It's just that it's a different flavor profile or just a different way of doing things. And so I've never quite experienced New York pizza outside or East Coast pizza outside of these coasts. And I've never quite experienced a New York bagel outside of these coasts. And so um, 
I've been in, I've lived in Bloomington since about 2008, and um, I kind of just didn't think I'd ever get a, a, what I call a New York bagel. When COVID broke out, so my wife and I, we own Buffaloes, and obviously COVID affected everybody, some more than others. You know, obviously people lost their lives, which is horrific. Others lost their business, which is tragic. And uh, others had their businesses tremendously affected. And fortunately for us, that was our category that or we, we sales were way down. I mean, it, it, it was just a, a downtime in the hospitality industry for obvious reasons. And so, but the trend, you know, in every, in every tragedy or bad situation, there's always opportunity. And the big thing in the restaurant industry during COVID was something called ghost kitchening. And ghost kitchening is simply a term that if you already have a, a, a commercial kitchen blessed by the health department, can you come up with another concept, maybe unbeknownst to everybody, maybe if you have an Italian restaurant, can you make Mexican food and maybe just have it go out either on Uber Eats or you get your own delivery service? They don't even need to know that it's coming from your kitchen or they'd be amazed if they knew it was, but just a, a, a new concept. And um, unfortunately, I had a lot of time during COVID and um, I started noodling around and thinking about things. And um, I found a bakery in uh, New Jersey that, well, I first started getting samples. I said, maybe I could open up a bagel shop inside of Buffalooie's. Um, we have a little storefront that wasn't being used. Maybe we could sell the bagels out of there. And I am not risk adverse, but I'm not a big risk taker. My wife is risk adverse. So, of course, I need her blessing because my marriage is far more important than selling bagels. And so um, she agreed that, all right, we're not going to open up a new store. So Ghost Kitchen was attractive. Um, and um, I started importing these bagels from New Jersey. And this place in New Jersey, your supplier, yeah. is there any limit to them? They can just ship out, you know, whatever you need? We have been to the plant, um, and uh, we are a long ways away from ever. I don't think we can max them. They make about 2 million bagels a week. So uh, um, they are designed to do exactly what um, we need, which is to uh, um, support a bagel shop that's not baking up from scratch. So what, what they're, the, the term in the industry is they're par-baking them. But they bake them within such tight controls. And I mean, they when you walk in the plant, you can see what the, the uh, humidity is, the barometric pressure, because baking is a science. It's, 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 an exa it's, it's chemistry. And they factor in humidity, outside temperature, all the factors that go into it, which can make a bagel either too flat, too, too, too dense, too thin, et cetera, et cetera. So the controls are amazing. And uh, we've been more than thrilled with everything they send us. So it, it's working. Par-baked, according to Ed, means the bagels arrive in his kitchen having already gone through almost all of the steps in the baking process. They've been shaped, proofed, boiled, even seeded, and then baked nearly to completion. They're then frozen and shipped to the shop, where the staff finishes the process so they're freshly baked in-house. And the proof is in the pudding because the customers are just, you know, the reviews have been five-star across the board. And um, lo and behold, uh, and I was doing it out of Buffaloes, we made it very underlined, very difficult for people to get the bagels. You had to order the day before. You couldn't get individual bagels, minimum of a dozen. Um, you had to pay in advance online. We, only, we sold just bulk cream cheese and bulk bagels. There was no onesie twosies. And was that by design or was that just the nature of it? It was just, I, it, I was doing it by myself. 
And so I can't make the bagel, smear the bagel. And plus, the term we used was Trace Jackson. So under threat of death from my wife, I was not allowed to have any impact. There was supposed to be no Trace or Trace Jackson that I was even there. So when the staff came in every morning, they would not be able to tell that Ed was doing his bagels in the morning. No Trace Jackson was the, was, was, was the, the, the running joke. And so... If there's not going to be a trace that I was there, I can't be online making sandwiches. I was just baking the bagels, putting them in bags, putting the cream cheese in a tub. Off you go, off you go. And um, we started doing that. We, we, we started that in, um, I'll say, the summer of 2021. And we did that for about six months. And after six months, there was a measurable buzz. I mean, the, there were people, uh, the, the Bloomington Foodies was really the first one to pick it up. Somebody posted who's got the best bagels in town. And at that point, I wasn't even advertising. I was I was almost like the uh, uh, an underground thing. Best people would secret. text me, yeah. they, I, is this the bagel guy? <laughs> like, I've heard you've got really good bagels. And it's, it's like, you know, having a drug dealer, but a bagel dealer. And so... Um, uh, I was the bagel guy, and I was uh, fulfilling orders left and right, uh, but still doing it by myself. And they were long days because I'm getting up early and then running the chicken wing business. Um, and so after a, a lot of consideration uh, and um, uh, giving it some deep thought, my wife and I decided that we were going to open up a store. And um, we found the location, which had its you know pros and cons like any location, uh, the thing that made it extremely attractive was there was almost unlimited parking. The thing that made it unattractive was it was small. Uh, it did not have a back door for delivery. There is a back door, but it leads to a deck. And so all deliveries go through the front, which I'm not a big fan of. You know, you'll be sitting in the store and a, and a delivery driver comes in and it just is what it is. I just wish, wish it wasn't that way, but you chaotic. can't have everything. Well, you're kind of bringing New York in there too, Correct. right? The, the, yeah. the tumult, the chaos, yeah. 100%. You just seen a delivery truck in the middle of the bike lane and you've got it. <laughs> 100%, Violet. 100%. So it's funny because you are touching on something. So the vibe, the energy is a lot of chaos, a lot of noise. We crank the music up. Uh, people seem to like it. And the feedback has been great. We signed the lease in January, uh, January 1st of 2022 is uh, the first day we took over uh, the space. And by about January 5th, I was convinced I made an amazing mistake that I'm in over my head. This wasn't going to work. But by about February 15th, it's like, you know what? I think I could do this. Because even though my wife and I, we, even though we already have a restaurant, we've never opened one. So when we took over Buffalo's, we just had to cobbled together the money. My wife was my wife was already the general manager, so there was no decisions that had to be made except can we get the money together? We knew how much money was going down to the bottom line, et cetera. With the bagel shop, every decision has to be made. What kind of chairs? What what kind of uh, you know what what colors are the walls? You know, what oven do you want? What every what, what napkins? Every single decision had to be made. And that's not fun. I don't like making a lot of decisions, but I forced myself to do so. And um, uh, we, uh, my goal was to be open by graduation, which is in May. And we, we took over January 1st. Well, May came and went, and uh, it was not to be. We wound up opening August 1st. It took us a lot longer than I had hoped. Um, and uh, we opened very quietly because we weren't quite ready. 
But I finally said, you know what? We just got to do it. Do the dis- thing. Exactly. Start start disappointing people, but just get the register ringing and let's figure it out. Because you can't figure everything out on the drawing board. You've got to literally start making mistakes and you learn and you lose and you make mistakes. And so we opened August 1st and um, we didn't even really announce it. And then again on Facebook, I think they're open. We never had a grand opening flyer or anything. We never cut a ribbon. We never put the chamber. I still think I want to do that, which is kind of dumb now. We're open seven months. But um, uh, but it, the, the response from the community has been overwhelming. Well, the truth is, as much as we like seeing it, we're working on ways to speed that up. And I think we are getting a lot better um, where, you know, it might be like a five to seven minute, uh, seven to 10. But, you know, in the beginning, it was 20 to 30 minutes. So I was like, I don't care how good our bagels are and all our cream cheese are made in-house. I said, you know, they're not going to wait that long. So we're working on processes. We're getting more efficient every day. Um, we're looking, and I say looking, we're not hardcore looking, but we are looking at a second location. And the main reason I'm looking for a second location is I want a bigger kitchen so that we could do things to support both spaces, because the kitchen we have in there, it's real small. I mean, I probably, in hindsight, you know, I, t- I talked about learning lessons. One of them was I wish we could do it again because I would have made the kitchen bigger. I would have made the space where the staff works bigger. Um, I gave too much space to the customer, but of course, we revere the customer. I want them to be comfortable. Um, so you live and learn. You live and right. learn. Is the majority of the business through that storefront now, or are you still doing orders? Uh, you mentioned you had a, what, 10 dozen bagel order coming up. Right. right. Well, like this morning we did, we fed the ROTC. Uh, it might have been 20 dozen. Um, if I had my druthers, I would rather only do big bulk orders. I would rather, uh, you said, all right, Ed, we have a function. I'm feeding 400 people. Great, Violet, I'll bring you know, 600 bagels, piping hot, fresh out of the oven, tubs of cream cheese, lox platters if you want, fruit bowls. That is still going to be easier than making 600 individual sandwiches or even 100 individual sandwiches. So um, we prefer the bulk orders, but unfortunately, we don't always get to decide, you know, uh, how we're going to get to pay the bills, uh, you know, each month. So I would say... The onesie twosies, people walking in and getting a breakfast sandwich, people walking in and getting a bagel with locks represents um, 85% of the business and 15 to 20% is the bulk orders. But we're doing more and more with that every day. Um, I have a couple of fraternities and sororities where we deliver them once a week, um, a couple of doctor's offices once a week, like a route. And that to me is really, I don't want to walk away or poo-poo the onesie twosies, but that's good business where it's just easy. And easy is, as you get older, <laughs> easy is good. Easy is good. Yeah, yeah that's interesting because it kind of goes back to the ghost kitchen, right? Like that was always a good model. Correct. But A, you know, I, I, I don't want to say I got greedy, but I realized that if I did spend some money um, and put more behind it, that there was that there was more to it. And the community has responded. So I was turns out I was right, which is nice um, because I'm not, you know, that's very seldom happens. But um, the easier model would have been to stick to what I was doing. Um, But then it it was more of a hobby than a a revenue stream. And probably if I did the math, we probably broke even, you know, and and if I figured out how many hours I spent doing it, you know, I, I basically just bought myself a job.
when I was doing the ghost kitcheting. So now it's it's a real thing. We have a real business. We're employing 15 people. We're looking at maybe a second store. Um, there's other people from other communities who are talking about possibly opening up and copying our model, which is very flattering. Um, so we'll see where it goes. I, I you know, I'd, one day at a time. Right now, I just have that one store. If I if I go to my uh, grave with just one bagel store, I'm okay. I'm content with that. But if I go to my grave with 50 stores, I'm content with that too. People might be seeing you as a model now. Do you think you'll do consulting or Why, something? Why? Thank you very much. Don't <laughs> well, mind if you I do. mentioned that. <laughs> I'm not sure what our next move is. The good news is that we have options. And um, uh, even if we do nothing, that's an option. But um, we're very anxious to add more items to our menu. But with our small kitchen, we're very limited. And so as a result, I know I need a bigger kitchen. So I could either, A, get what's called a commissary kitchen and just make stuff out of the kitchen and then bring it into the shop. Not so different from the Buffaloes, right? Well, no. Well, I mean, like when you were making it there. Correct. Well, but, but we, we made it there and sold it there. So now I'm saying, okay, I want more stuff in my kitchen. At, or I want more items to sell at uh, Gable's Bagels. Well, we're, I, can't, I just don't have the capacity to make it or store it. I'm very limited in my freezer space, refrigeration space. So I need a second kitchen. Well, what if that second kitchen is attached to a storefront? So now not only are we making stuff there, we're generating revenue there. So these are all things I, I think about, and I if I see a for lease sign, I look, and then I got to just try to talk myself out of it, slow down, slow down, it's okay, just do what you're doing, maybe think in a, you know, in a year, you know. So it's exci- it's very exciting to think about, but it's also, I got to, I, I think, um, uh, what's the phrase, discretion is the better part of valor. So in, in this case, I'm going to try to be, you know, go slow, and in the worst case, do nothing for another six months. But don't be surprised if next week you you read that we're opening up a store, you know, on campus. But we'll see. We'll see. I don't know. We'll see what the future holds. Who are your primary customers? Is it different in the storefront versus the order? Is there like one group that really comes out or everybody? I would say everybody. Uh, certainly the student body has been, you know, crazy for the bagels, particularly the East Coast kids, um, because they grew up on this on this flavor profile. And not only are they crazy about it, they bring their parents in. And the parents, of course, I say, is your first time here? Yes. And they say, my son has been raving about your, your place, but I'm a little skeptical. And I, get, I say, hey, this is how I am walking into any bagel shop or pizza shop anywhere. I'm like, eh, I'm not going to be the typical New Yorker, but I can't believe these bagels or this pizza is going to be any good. And then they try it. So certainly the students represent a strong uh, percentage, but the locals and then um, groups, all kinds of groups, as I mentioned before, the, uh, the hospital, surgery center, uh, doctor's offices, insurance agencies, fraternities, sororities, anybody. Well, the other nice thing is because of what we're doing and the words getting out, it's kind of a new thought for people because it used to be, well, I'm going to a meeting, I'll, br- I'll bring donuts. Right. Well, now, wait a minute. Bagels are just, I think, better. It's more, it's more of a wow, in my humble opinion. And so... Uh, I would say it's a cross-section of everybody, but probably the students lead the way. You know, you were saying, like, you can't really replace yourself, right? You're a big part of the store, and everybody, when I come in, when my friends go in, they say, you know, it's the the guy. You know, he's such a big part of the experience, right? Because you're chatting everyone up, you know, you're making jokes and stuff. Do you think that's a sort of big part of the model for you? Well, you know, the old phrase, um, you know, treat others like you'd want to be treated, 
Um, and I enjoy that. Now, not everybody does. And obviously, I hopefully I've learned enough to read people. If I greet them and smile and, you know, they just keep their head down and just give me a bagel, fine. I'll probably try one time to crack that veneer because, uh, but most people, and I mean the majority of people come in our place. First of all, the music is pumping. It, there's just a vibe. In fact, if going back to those reviews, read some of those reviews, they comment on the vibe and the energy in the place. And that's not just me. And I'm also always not there. I mean, our staff plays the role pretty, I think, very well. So um, I th- we think it's important. It seems to work for us. And it also, uh, it's a much better way to pass the day. Being friendly, outgoing, getting to know your customers. I can't tell you uh, the amount of people who walk in now and we know their name. And boy, does that feel good. I know uh, they like it. We like it because, you know, we ask for your name. We take your order. But if you walk through the door and we yell your name, Violet, welcome <laughs> back. Good to yeah. see you. You got and, regulars. Yeah, oh, yeah. and we do. Oh, boy, do we ever. And, I, and that is, the, to me, the biggest compliment of all is when people come back again and again and again. So not only do they like us, but we're, we're putting out a consistent product that they know they're not going to be disappointed. And um, it's, you know, to me, serving others is, an, we might not be solving, uh, you know, curing cancer, but I think what we're doing matters. I think, you know, extending a smile to somebody, asking them where they're from, engaging, connecting with them, connecting on some level. Um, and to me, food does that. And, you know, particularly bagels, and particularly if I go, I love asking where they're from, if they're from, and they say New York, Philadelphia, New Jersey, and it's their first time in, you better believe I'm walking over to their table if they're eating in. So how'd we do? And I mean, they're usually they got cream cheese coming out of the side of their mouth, and they're just nodding their head and going, dude. Speechless. Yeah. yeah. I can't believe it. Chewing on Gable's bagels, I get it. When I moved to the Midwest from Brooklyn four years ago, I knew I would be compromising on some New York favorites. What makes a New York bagel, or in this case Jersey, I guess, is something in the texture and flavor. They're big, for one. Fluffy, but also chewy. Soft but substantial, maybe. They have a good moisture content, and if you wrap them in a plastic bag, they'll coat the inside with humid drops. They're not super sweet, but you can taste the gluten as you bite down. What struck me about bagels, like all New York goods, is that they're wrapped in the feeling of being in New York. Crowds, sounds, smells, good and bad together. It's a tough place to live despite its pleasures, even for a native like me. I do think Gables gets the formula just about right. Maybe something in the feeling of being in that chaotic shop helps, that sensory overlap. The personality, the vibe, it's an experience. Okay, so the Jewish word is mitzvah, and that means to do a good thing for somebody, do a mitzvah. And I cannot tell you how many customers have come in and they've tried that wafer spread, and we make it all in-house, they've tried our smoked salmon spread, they tr- we make all our spreads in-house, and they literally say, Ed, you are doing a mitzvah for the community. And maybe I am, I'm not trying to you know, make it out to be too much, but it feels good to hear. Violet Barron is a producer for our show and also for WFIU's Interstates. Violet is also the local on-air announcer for All Things Considered, 
weekday evenings on WFIU in Bloomington. Farmers markets across the Midwest are summer havens, a welcoming community gathering space rich with healthy fruits, vegetables, and local goods. But people of color, both vendors and shoppers alike, have been systematically excluded from these spaces. A new initiative is trying to change that. Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin spoke with Midwest-based Julia Lynn Walker, who helped the Farmers Market Coalition develop an anti-racist Farmers Market toolkit. So before we talk about the toolkit itself, I'd like to hear your perspective on racism at farmers markets. You know, I'll be totally honest, when I think of farmers markets, I think of them as predominantly white spaces. Why is that? Exactly. And I think that it is, it's a reflection of our society overall. And it's a reflection of uh, beliefs that we hold that certain institutions are for certain people. And so, uh, and, and when people were put into um, positions of power, however limited those positions may be, they make decisions that are consistent with their environment, decisions consistent with, you know, what they see around them. And so if you consistently visit farmers markets that are all white, you don't think about what do I need to do to make sure that uh, uh, all people in the community are represented, whether it is the information you immediately disseminate or whether it's how you structure your market or in the even in terms of the items that you have. There's a couple of times I, I would walk in and say, oh, which vendor has okra? And they would just look at me, or well, which vendor has collard greens? Well, none of our vendors. Well, then those are the, I don't want kale. <laughs> you know, I want so you have if you really want to attract a particular market, then it's important to have the foods that that market wants. Otherwise, we won't come. So tell me about the toolkit. What is the overall goal? I would say to get people thinking, and then to get them to act based on new thoughts that come up. So it's to think, it's to help you think through, as I said before, like in terms of messaging, you know, really, how do you step back and look at the uh, kinds of material you're using, look at your market, you know, look at the vendors, and at each level of the process, ask yourself, what is the message being sent if I were to look at this from a different perspective? So uh, whether you are a, uh, a for-profit, a nonprofit or a municipal agency within each level, you have to talk about, you know, decision-making. Who's at the table to make the decision? Whose voice is weighted? Whose voice is listened to? And then once the decisions are made, how are those decisions implemented? And finally, is there a process by which we evaluate what happened and then reassess at some future point? What is your hope for the future? What do you hope a farmer's market, a typical farmer's market might look like down the road? Well, I would hope that it really is reflective of the community and that we have all kinds of people involved and there are all kinds of uh, uh, representation is not just in terms of the food, but it's in terms of the activities, the music, a lot of, you know, it, it is, it, we really make it holistic. And I know that that's only possible when everybody is seated at the table. So I hope that at a minimum, that, that people who pick up the, the, the anti-racism toolkit, at the very least, will begin to work on how do I make sure that everybody is at the table? 
And once they're at the table, listen to them. That was Julia Lynn Walker, a market manager based in the Midwest who helped develop a new anti-racist farmer's market toolkit. She spoke with Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. Raleigh, North Carolina-based poet and storyteller Beverly Fields Burnett originally published her poem, Artichoke Pickle Passion, in Catch the Fire, a cross-generational anthology of contemporary African-American poetry in 1998. It has since been republished nationally as well as in cookbooks. In honor of National Poetry Month, she joined producer Josephine McRobbie to talk about the inspiration behind her sonnet. My name is Beverly Fields Burnett. I grew up in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. We lived with my mother and her two old maid sisters. I eavesdropped and I was quiet, they thought. I was just nosy. (laughs) And I had to learn that if you don't sit right up close to grown people, they'll keep talking. If you say, oh, I'm tired of playing, and you go and sit on the side of the porch, or whatever. You can listen without looking directly at them. But the crazy thing about it is it has honed my skills for listening and remembering everybody's story. I'm a retired school social worker. Um, Worked for Wake County Public Schools for 25 years. I am a published poet and a storyteller. I'm president of the North Carolina Association of Black Storytellers, and it's a, an affiliate of the National Association of Black Storytellers. It was 10th grade, and uh, one day in English class, the teacher said everyone, everybody should write a poem. I remember just sitting and looking and trying to get something to inspire me. It got to be 9.30 at night, and I'm still sitting there trying to write a poem. Finally, I just said, in English class, I was told to write a poem, Oh So Bold. I thought and thought and thought and thought and came up with this poem, Naught. Miss Grimes, if this poem isn't right, I won't get mad and argue and fight. It took much more than an hour and also a lot of brain power. That was the gist of it. She loved it. She took it around all over the school. (laughs) It was just a little rhyme, um, A-B-A-B rhyme poem that uh, set me ablaze because she was so proud. And then from then on, I didn't have to write about the flowers or the moon and the stars. I'd write about what was around me. I wrote this poem called Artichoke Pickle Passion. An Elizabethan poem put, put in the form of such an ordinary, everyday kind of thing. I just like the style, um, I like the, the rhythm of um, that style. Artichoke Pickle Passion, a sonnet. In southern springs, we dug for artichokes in Ms. Olivia's tall and weedy yard. She dipped her snuff, but never ever smoked. At 85, she wasn't avant-garde. Her back of spittings grew the vegetable. Well-nourished were the tubers, strong, 
the stalks. And even though their worth was questionable, with hoe in hand, we dug, postponing talk. Once washed, soaked, sliced, they met some torrid brine. Aromas flew on steamy clouds of heat. When canned, the waiting was the longest time. How many weeks or months before we eat? In southern springs, we dug the precious root. And still this day, it is my passion fruit. My mother did domestic work, so my Aunt Floss, who was a retired teacher, had out, she was our nursemaid, you might say. My, I had one sister. And one day she said we were going to go up the street to Miss Olivia's yard. In front of our house was the, the um, elementary school I went to. And to the left, a block up, was an old, a uh, whole long list of apartments that were really rather dilapidated looking. Well, Miss Olivia lived in the corner apartment, and we have to pass her house going to church. And she'd be sitting on the porch in a little gingham faded dress, and uh, she would pull her stockings up to her knee and put a little knot in it. And so she had on these stockings, and she had on a head rag, and she had her lip full of snuff every time I saw her. And my aunt said, we're going to go up to Miss Olivia's yard and dig artichokes. I didn't know what artichokes were. And most importantly, although Miss Olivia had these beautiful, tall sunflowers she always grew every year in her backyard, she'd be leaning over her back porch and spitting into the yard. So we went, because you have to obey your elders. We went and dug and dug and dug. And it was the roots of these sunflowers, these six foot, seven foot, maybe even eight foot tall um, flowers. They're called Jerusalem artichokes. And it's like the consistency of a sweet potato. I didn't write it till the 90s. And I know about, I was what, 10 years old when we did this digging. So she was already I would love to, you know, sometimes as children you don't appreciate the elders around you, you know, and being, as I said, the inquisitive one, I would have loved to have sat down with her and, and found out her, her family history. That was poet and storyteller Beverly Fields Burnett talking with producer Josephine McRobbie in Raleigh, North Carolina. Dear Earth Eats listeners, yes, I'm talking to you with your radio tuned to WFIU or this episode downloaded into your podcast playlist. Thank you for tuning in. I want to invite you to consider subscribing to the Earth Eats Digest. It's a short newsletter I put out every two weeks. I write a little something at the beginning, usually about the current season and what might be growing or what sounds good to eat. Maybe I'll touch on some larger issue in the food world. 
it's usually along the lines of a short personal essay. The newsletter also includes a hand-picked selection of recipe links that take you directly to the Earth Eats archive found on our website. And then I'll mention what's coming up on the show or what you might have just missed the previous week, and I announce any special events or things that might be of interest to listeners. There's always plenty of photos and links to make it easy to find out more about anything that piques your interest. The newsletter is called the Earth Eats Digest. It's free and it's easy to sign up. If you go to eartheats.org, you'll see a pale green rectangle to the right of the page that says, stay in touch with Earth Eats. Just click on that and you'll be signed up in no time. I never send an email more than once every two weeks and we won't sell your data or your email address to anyone else or try to get you to sign up for a paid subscription. There is no paid version of the Earth Eats Digest. It's all free. I look forward to connecting with you more. Go to eartheats.org to subscribe. are bursting out all over the Midwest right now. The daffodils are still blooming, tulips are coming on, and the buds on the trees are beginning to swell. A few are already in full color. There's one tree that blooms rather late that I want to draw your attention to. It's the black locust tree. Sometimes people hear the word locust and they think I'm talking about insects. Not this time. I'm talking about the tree. They tend to bloom in late April or early May, so there's still plenty of time to catch this fleeting beauty. But these flowers are not just beautiful and fragrant, they are edible, and they're a lot of fun to harvest and to cook with. Dedicated Earth Eats listeners might remember a recipe from a few years back. Chef Daniel Orr makes a locust blossom jelly. You can find the recipe for that on our website, eartheats.org. This recipe for black locust flower fritters comes from my partner, Carl. He's the only person I know who makes these, besides his brother, who lives in Kentucky. So for this one, I had to look no further than my own backyard. Well, and down the street for the flowers. Locust flowers are easy to spot. Just look up. The trees are usually pretty tall, with dark bark, and branches dipping down covered in lacy clusters of shimmering white flowers. You can usually find them late April, early May, and they stand out since most of the other trees have already leafed out. So I went out this morning to search for black locust flowers and they were super easy to find. There are trees all along the bee line here in Bloomington, just dripping with the flowers. And there are some trees in which the branches are low enough that I could just walk right up to them and start pulling flowers off. But sometimes you have to get a ladder to get to them. And now I am pulling off the flowers off the stem one by one until I have four cups. The fritter batter is one and a half cups of flour and a can of seltzer water. Some people use beer 
but seltzer water will work just fine. And then I've added a teaspoon of vanilla. Next, I will fold in these beaten egg whites that are that have peaks, but they're not too stiff. I'm folding the egg whites into the flour and seltzer water or flour and beer mixture. In the refrigerator, I have four cups of black locust flowers that I picked this morning. I mix those with a quarter cup of sugar and three tablespoons of orange flavoring. The recipe I have calls for the recipe calls for Grand Marnier, but I just use the orange flavoring, organic orange flavoring that I found at the grocery store. So now I'm going to fold in these flowers that have been mixing that I mixed with sugar and the orange flavoring, and I put those in the refrigerator for an hour. Everything I got everything cold. And that's it for the batter. Now I'm going to take them to the deep fryer and with one third cup scoops, I'm going to make say four or five or six fritters at a time. We'll see how many fit and we'll cook them for four minutes per side. Just to back up a bit, the first thing you want to do once you've harvested your flowers and picked them off the stems is mix them with some sugar and Grand Marnier or orange extract. Cover them, put them in the fridge for an hour. Next, you want to get your deep fryer ready. Fill it with peanut oil and set the temp at 375. Next, separate your eggs and beat the egg whites until they have peaks, but they aren't too stiff. Now you're ready to mix up the fritter batter. Add the chilled and sweetened black locust flowers, and then it's time to fry the fritters. Okay, so this is a recipe that I have adapted from my brother's recipe, who in turn adapted his recipe from Jacques Papin, who recommends making uh, acacia flower fritters as well, but I've never tried that. So now I'm putting in a quarter cupfuls of the batter into the 375 degree oil. You could make this on stovetop, but I'm making it in an electric deep fryer outside in my backyard on a beautiful spring day. This recipe makes a lot of fritters and uh, they're best in the moments after they've been made. So to prevent us from getting sick to our stomach, we usually try and invite people over to have fritters with us. Our neighbors are due any minute, and these will be done in a few minutes. The recipe that I have says uh, cook them for four minutes on one side and then turn them over and cook them for four more. But it looks like these are gonna be done in a lot less time than that. This has been about three minutes and I think they are done. I'm cooking these at 375 degrees. They're nicely browned, so uh, I'm gonna take them out and put them on a wire rack and let them drip off a little bit. Then we'll put them on a platter and we'll sprinkle some confectioner sugar on top to add a little grace. Our neighbors arrive through the back gate, Robin and her three kids, Lucia, Nova, and Colette. 
Lucia was the first to give them a try. What did they taste like? Like a donut, sort of, except less sweet. Mm. Really good. Can you taste like the flowers? A flower donut. Yeah, a flower donut. <laughs> it makes a really good sound on the on the microphone. I bet it's real crisp. <laughs> it melts. In your in your mouth. Mm. Melt-in-your-mouth crunch. Doesn't get much better than that. You will notice the flowers, even in all that fried dough. They have a lush fragrance and a sweet nectar-like flavor that mingles nicely with the orange. So, keep an eye out for those locust flowers in the next couple weeks, and you can try this recipe yourself. You don't need a deep fryer. A heavy skillet or a Dutch oven works great, too. We have the instructions for black locust flower fritters on our website, eartheats.org. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening, and happy spring. Produced and edited by Kate Young with help from Ayabon Binder, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Samantha Schimenauer, Peyton Welly, Harvest Public Media, and me, Daniela Richardson. Special thanks this week to Violet Barron, Ed Schwartzman, Beverly Fields Burnett, Josephine McRobbie, Carl Pearson, Robin, Lucia, Nova, and Colette. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.